0: Go to Bluehost.com slash Wondersuite.
1: You're you're listening to a Roddenberry Podcast. Hold hold on there, partner. We'll be right back. But right now, time for Tales from the Mean
0: Streets with Genealogy,
1: a Roddenberry Podcast.
0: Episode 13, Oil Lease. Welcome to Mission Law Genealogy. I'm Norman Lau. And I'm Earl Green. Each week on Genealogy, we go digging down into Gene Roddenberry's early TV writing career, nearly a decade before the creation of Star Trek, to see if he was working the kind of messages into his prior work that we came to associate with the final frontier. This week, Gene rides shotgun with
1: the highway patrol one last time. But maybe shotgun isn't such a good thing
0: when the bad guys have a bazooka. Earl will be back with trivia in a moment, but first, here's how you can reach us. Genealogy is meant to be entertaining and informative, but it's also the beginning of an ongoing conversation about the works of Gene Roddenberry. Drop us a line at missionlog@roddenberry.com at and join us on X, formerly known as Twitter, and Facebook at Mission Log Pod. While you're at it, leave us a review and a rating at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And please remember, your comments could be used on future installments of Genealogy.
1: Now, before we get to trivia, we've got some exciting news. Well, we think it's exciting.
0: And up until now, everyone's been seeing Genealogy show up in the Mission Log feed. But when 2024 begins, Genealogy will be moving to its own podcast feed and will no longer be featured in the Mission Log feed. If you like what we've been doing with this show... And hopefully
1: you do. Hopefully you will follow us to the new feed, not miss a single show, and keep enjoying our deep dive into Gene's back catalog. Because trust us, we are
0: just getting started. So please keep an eye on podcasts.roddenberry.com for more details. And now, here is Earl Green with this week's trivia. Thank you, Norman. Gene's time with the
1: Highway Patrol is up. But at this point, he's been a full-time freelance television writer for half a year. And his prolific nature, now unconstrained by competition from a day job, was starting to assert itself. An episode of West Point written by Gene would debut mere days after his final Highway Patrol outing. This phenomenon would become common throughout the rest of the 50s, as he continued to hone his craft and lock down gigs that would allow him to support his family, Gene wrote so many episodes of television that his name became a common sight in prime time. In researching the various cast members of this episode, I found an interesting and almost certainly coincidental phenomenon, but with the exception of actor Jack Shea, who played the oil field foreman, this episode of Highway Patrol was among every guest star's last acting credits. Steve Wayne, who played one of the Highway Patrol officers, started acting primarily in commercials in the 1960s. The more prominent officer, the one whose car comes under attack from the criminals, was played by Howard Price, who has only three more acting credits listed in IMDb after this episode. Dick Standish, who played Fletcher, has a very similar IMDb page. Robert Heumann, and yes, that is his name, had only a few more roles after playing Stalker before transitioning to behind-the-scenes work, including picture and sound editing throughout the 1970s. Now, it's important to note that when you see IMDb listings like this, there's almost certainly stuff being left out. Think about shows like Mr. District Attorney, which have not been seen by the general public in quite some time, and possibly not since before there were crowdsourced websites gathering cast and crew information for older TV shows. Commercial shoots generally aren't listed. Neither is stage work, unless it's noted in the trivia section, and voiceover work, for that matter. So there are numerous explanations for someone having a relatively thin IMDb listing, especially when it comes to cast and crew of shows of the same vintage as Highway Patrol. There's almost certainly more to their story. This episode aired on or around December 3rd, 1956, in syndication, months after Gene's retirement from the LAPD, and as such it is the only Highway Patrol episode to bear his name rather than his pseudonym, Robert Wesley. But it's not the first time Gene's name appeared as an on-screen credit. That honor goes to Gene's first episode of the CBS series West Point, which premiered in October 1956 and was his first gig as a staff writer. Chronologically, Oil Lease aired nearly half a year after Prospector. The final script, and that's final in air quotes, is dated June 28, 1956, with revised Yellow Pages dated August 27th, and one revised blue page from an August 23rd revision.
0: Our suspects should still be on Highway 14. We've got it blocked here and here. And we're blocking the other exit. Here. If they're in there, they've got no way out. I
1: can think of one way out. A bazooka launches a three-and-a-half-pound rocket. It hits with the punch of a 75-millimeter howitzer. It can rip a patrol car to shreds. If they want to go through, how was one man with a thirty-eight revolver
0: going to stop them? What do you suggest?
1: We can move in some
0: armor. How long? Base is three hundred miles away. Say six hours. They should be at one of our roadblocks in six minutes. They've got you on firepower and range. Let's hope they don't fight suppose they do. We've got something in common with the Army, Colonel. That's what we're paid for, too.
1: Dan Matthews of the California Highway Patrol takes on cases where criminals may be on the move or on the run and brings them back to face justice. This is just one of his cases on the Highway Patrol. Act 1. A car pulls off the side of a rural stretch of highway, and two men, Stalker and Davidson, step outside to watch. If Stalker's information is right, the next vehicle they will see will be right on schedule, the armored truck carrying the payroll cash to a local oil company. Stalker's got a plan for a daring heist, and he's got a bazooka stolen from an army base. The bazooka is pretty much Stalker's entire cunning plan, and boy does he love to talk about his time in combat in Korea. Oh, hey, there goes the armored truck, right on time. Stalker and Davidson get back in their car and follow from a distance. It's on. The plan is in motion. Elsewhere on the highway, Dan Matthews of the Highway Patrol meets up with Fletcher from the Army's Criminal Intelligence Division. Stalker's theft of the bazooka and its ammunition have not gone unnoticed. He also stole gas grenades and gas masks. And when Stalker and Davidson last stopped at a service station, The attendant there noticed the bazooka in the back seat and called the highway patrol. With only two other patrol cars at his disposal, Matthews orders two roadblocks to be set up near the suspect's last stop. One of his officers notes that the oil company is nearby, but so far as he knows, they write checks for their payroll. Matthews feels like the suspects are boxed in already, but Fletcher begs to differ. After all, Stalker has a bazooka, and Fletcher says that can make quick work of a single-car roadblock. But the first vehicle to be stopped by the roadblock is the armored truck, which just completed its delivery of $33,000 in cash, not checks, to the oil company. Matthews and Fletcher head to the oil company in Matthews' patrol car, but by the time they get there, it's too late. Stocker and Davidson have already struck and made their escape with the entire cash payroll. Matthews checks to see if Fletcher is armed, and he is, but Fletcher points out that he just has a handgun. Stocker has a bazooka. Matthews calls in a warning to the officer whose roadblock will soon be encountered by Stalker, and the officer takes up a defensive position and opens fire. Under fire and without time to break out the big guns, Stalker turns tail and runs, and the officer gives chase, fully aware that the men he's chasing have him badly outgunned. Act 2. Stalker and Davidson gain just enough ground to pull over, get out the bazooka, and ambush the pursuing patrol car. Stalker fires two projectiles, striking the car a glancing blow, taking out a front tire. The officer has to give up the chase, but reports to Matthews what has happened. As they make their escape, Davidson demands to know why Stalker didn't finish that cop off. After all, Stalker has a bazooka. Panicked, Stalker turns around. They'll make their stand in the oil field itself. But Davidson is increasingly unconvinced of Stalker's military record, and it quickly becomes clear that Stalker hasn't got the stomach to kill a man with his bazooka. He does, however, threaten to fire a shot that will set the entire oil field on fire. The oil company foreman, panicked at the thought of losing millions rather than just that day's payroll, is ready to give Stalker whatever he wants, but Matthews refuses to back down. With no backup on the way, Matthews and Fletcher improvise, finding a bulldozer whose blade, when raised, might just be armor enough to level the playing field. Fletcher's still uncertain about the plan. After all, Stalker has a bazooka. But for lack of a better plan, the bulldozer starts roaring toward where Stalker and Davidson are holed up. With Stalker rapidly losing his nerve, the power dynamic between the two criminals has changed. Now Davidson has a bazooka. Oh, oh, oh. But Stalker takes off running, so now Davidson has no one to feed ammo into the bazooka. As soon as he's close enough, Matthews does an impressive flying leap off the bulldozer, getting the drop on Davidson. Fletcher fires a shot and stops Stalker in his tracks. No one has been hurt, and best of all, neither Stalker nor Davidson now has a bazooka.
0: The end. Fantastic recap as always, Earl. Uh, I'm glad that uh, you were able to take aim, uh, and we were able to feed you into a a round of uh, a wonderful um, recap copy, if you will. I kept it short and
1: snappy because I have got lots of ammunition lined up and aimed at this episode. More than in any other Highway Patrol episode I've watched, I noticed here that our announcer, Mr. Art Gilmore, is having to do some serious heavy lifting. He's talking for something like, what is the first two minutes of the show before anyone else gets a line in? He's having to explain the whole plan, and so we have to just jump right into it. Is there actually too much plot here
0: for the length of this show? Usually I'm a big fan of kind of like the voiceover work. I'm not saying that the voiceover work was bad, but doing what we do here, we, you know, we watch the episode and now we can watch the episode with the script on the side so we can compare to see what changes were made to the episode from the script. The strange thing about this episode is that the scripted voiceover that Gene wrote was not at all the same. As the actual produced voiceover, which is in the episode. Yeah, no, it wasn't. It was very different. It was very different. I'm going to go actually into more detail because I want you, the listeners, to hear like the differences. And maybe, even though that kind of human bomb we do think is the one that, that may have set Gene off, the changes that were made to the voiceover work, at least at the beginning of the episode, were also pretty substantial to aggravate a writer Especially where Gene was at this time So I'm wondering if This was the episode That set him off
1: It could be, I really wish that we had Some kind of note somewhere to indicate Which one did it Of course it could be that Human Bombs set him off But this one kind of broke the camel's back Because it, it's worth reminding people This is Gene's last episode Of Highway Patrol Now part mm-hmm. of that is because he moves on to a staff writer job So you know, Suddenly, he's on the payroll. He's doing TV full-time. I don't know if they really necessarily had writers' rooms back then, the way we think of them now. In fact, I I think that was a much later innovation. But he obviously did not need to come back to the adventures of Dan Matthew in the future.
0: Have you noticed that all the criminals, most of, if not all the criminals, in Highway Patrol that we've seen so far are wearing leather jackets, and not just any leather jacket, and I'm sure that's his wardrobe department, like having the same or multiple models of leather jackets, but there's an actual leather jacket type called the A-2 Pilot or bomber jacket. And I'm just wondering, is this like shorthand for quote-unquote criminals wardrobe back in the 1950s?
1: Well, it could be, and and not just the 1950s. I mean, you think as far forward as the 70s. Think in terms of Greece which you know, I'm stunned to be bringing that up in this podcast. But you think about the movie Grease, and you think about the stage play Grease, the leather jackets and the greasy hair, you know, this was kind of shorthand for these guys are from the wrong side of town. You know, these are, these are not your fine, upstanding young citizens. But as Stalker points out about metals, it could also be that these bomber jackets can be found in any secondhand store.
0: Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, I like that.
1: Very very easy picking, very cheap thing for the costume department to pick up at a discount. Right. Matthews calls in the FBI again. He did this just last week in Prospector. They didn't show up in Prospector, and they don't show up here either. We can afford to talk about the FBI, but we can't afford to show them, apparently, although I find myself wondering if this is maybe a decision on the executive producer end. Matthews has to be top of the food chain in this show. Mm-hmm. If we show someone above him,
0: that somehow reduces him. Right. Uh, even Fletcher, like, later on, you know, he's kind of second fiddle. Everyone's a little bit second fiddle to Dan Matthews, so that makes perfect sense. Even though that, you know, he basically is, he has the, uh, the governance over, what, a handful of highways and, like, five cop cars. Or something like that? Only two cop cars this week,
1: man. I mean, right. the, the Romulan blockade is just going to get right through these cop cars.
0: If anyone like wanted to do any kind of crime, just find like the police district or the organization that has like the only one car in the sector, you know, or <laughs> the only one. I mean, there is actually, I know this is a little out of script, there's a funny scene though, where one of the cops, you know, he gets his tires blown out by a bazooka uh, shot. And Matthew says, can you get back to the highway and set up a block? I'm like, with what? His body? <laughs> right? It's like, what's he going to do? Shove? Yeah, exactly. He's going to like shove the car. For for all of you people who are listening and not seeing this, it's this is Earl like just get, making himself into like a paper doll figure and saying, no, please stop. Uh, a la Austin Powers and the um, the steamrolling machine. Not, not that this was a funny episode, but there were funny scenes in this episode that I thought that were just a little chuckle worthy. Matthews tells Fletcher that a gas station attendant was able to give him descriptions on their suspects because he saw the bazooka in the backseat of the car, a bazooka in the backseat of a car. I also think it's great that, hey, you know what? One bazooka in, uh, in this entire story is like the greatest threat that you would see in the 1950s. Like you have human bomb, a guy with you know a bunch of dynamite in his car, you know, that super terrorist threat, a bazooka. Super terrorist threat. It would kind of get laughed at today, having a bazooka, because it's like that scene in Crocodile Dundee where this kid tries to stick up Mick Dundee with a switchblade, and he goes, that's not a knife. And he pulls out, you know, his 18-inch bow, and he goes, that's a knife. That's that kind of funny, like, visual kind of joke. Now
1: I'm starting to think this whole episode came about because of a visit to the Army Surplus store, if you think about it. Oh, we got bomber jackets and a bazooka for 12 bucks. Gene, can you write something to fit this? <laughs> right. Bomber jackets all over the place,
0: and a guy... Prop with department a comes in under budget.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Speaking of changes to the script, when we do our little mini-dramatizations of scenes from Gene's scripts for genealogy, we are working from the scripts and not referring to the show itself. In fact, the scene is usually one of the first things that I pick out for a show. In our scene for today's episode there is an unnamed army colonel who gets one line. In the show as filmed that line is given to Fletcher. The script had three characters the show only had two and to be honest it doesn't really need this extra colonel to be a separate character and so that's that's a case of hey you know we spent all our money on this army surplus bazooka we're not paying another actor for that one line.
0: Well, maybe the idea to add the kernel in the script was just a kernel of an idea. And it just popped, and now he's gone. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. The inflation check for this episode, inflation check as in we're checking the inflation of uh, a monetary value in this episode. So the payroll for the oil lease land is $33,000 in payroll cash in the armored car that the guys are going to heist, that Stockton and Davidson going to heist. That's approximately $340,000 in U.S. dollars today, which will help feed into your point later on, Earl, about the, uh, I guess it was the oil foreman saying, we don't care about our paychecks. The oil derricks are worth more. So $340,000 to what the value of the oil is, is the point.
1: You know, looking at that $33,000 figure, I didn't go look it up, but I just instinctively knew from our past discussions of the valuation of the dollar now versus then, I was like, oh, that's a pretty good chunk of change.
0: It's a little over 1,000% increase. Yeah. Yeah. There's a bunch of really odd ways that Stalker pulls the bazooka out from the backseat of his car and then hoists it and then puts it back in the car. I mean, first of all, why not stick it in the trunk? Because second of all, if you did, then the gas attendant wouldn't have seen it.
1: Maybe. Maybe. Now, this is going to become a thing later in discussion. I know I'm, I've got some notes mentioning this. As we find out, Stalker. Did not see combat, he brags about it. it's kind of like the wish app version of Deed from police Brutality. <laughs> you and I think saw
0: the same thing <laughs> he,
1: he is even less capable than deed Deed is actually more dangerous. Deed's got a better plan stalker's whole plan is I've got a bazooka but yeah, I noticed that, uh, especially like the first time they hit a roadblock they can't even get the bazooka out of the back seat and at one point when they throw the bazooka in the back seat it apparently doesn't land right so you know they have the the seat that goes forward he throws the bazooka back there it doesn't land right and then he has to adjust it before he can set the seat back and get into the driver's seat which you know if you're being chased <laughs> you're burning a lot of time but I think this goes back to no retakes 30 hour production cycle that's all we've got to film this if you got it close enough for jazz good enough
0: right good enough for government work also if you want to see it done right watch a movie called ronin with robert de niro and that's when sunroofs are very handy for bazookas that's you know that's all i got to say about that but yeah uh, it's just a lot of odd kind of blocking and action sequences in this episode because i don't think that anyone i'm not sure if they had like an expert in kind of like these types of like Long arms fire on set, but it was just, again, very awkward.
1: I'm not sure they had an expert in anything, because there's a scene where Matthews and Fletcher jump into Matthews' patrol car when they discover that the oil company has been held up. Matthews throws the car in reverse and backs up a long way. Oh, yeah. Before he turns it around, you know, does the three-point turn and goes forward again. And for one terrible second there, I thought he was going to pull a Frank Drebin from Police Squad... And just back the car
0: up the whole way. <laughs> oh, if we only had Frank Drebin in this episode. There's an interesting thing, though, that happened several times, both by the, uh, the patrolman in this episode and even by Matthews himself. On the radio, when 2150 calls to another patrol car, the patrol car answers with 3156, bye. Bye. I've never heard that radio terminology before. I looked it up on the internet and I couldn't find what that meant. Usually it's either over or out. But, you know, when they responded and even Matthews did it, they said, this is, and Matthews car is 2150 goes 2150 Bye. I'm like, what does that mean? I mean, obviously it means over or continue or something or here, like I'm here, go ahead. But it was just odd that we've, haven't seen that. I haven't seen that yet. In in Highway Patrol.
1: It's been in Highway Patrol throughout. Have you not noticed that? It's been in past scripts that Gene has written. It has been in the scripts. 2150, bye. And right, but this is the first time I've actually heard it. I haven't heard it in other episodes. No, no, I've heard it in the previous episodes. What it may be about, you know, as far as using bye instead of over, it's a single syllable. There's less chance. There's less ambiguity. It's like saying... Raj instead of Roger, which is also a, you know, a fairly common thing in two way radio communications. You're saying Raj. If you listen to the air to ground loops for NASA missions, you will frequently hear the Capcom or someone say Raj instead.
0: Yeah, but Raj is, sh- I get that. It, like Raj is short for Roger. I get that because that's actually, that's in the parlance of like radio chatter. But I've never heard by before, nor have I been able to find a reference to that particular sign online. I just, I, I, I found it odd. It may be a post-war
1: thing, you know, sort of acknowledging we are not in the military anymore. You don't have to say, Roger, we're, you know, we're not in the army anymore. Just say bye. What about under and done? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. All right. So if you remember when we were doing mental patient, Hobson was supposedly 29 years old and he did not look it. Davidson is the late 30s looking 25 year old. And they specify he's 25 years old in the script, and they say
0: it on screen. I'm telling you, it's the hair. When you have, like, jet black hair like Davidson has with that, like, Widow's Peak, again, look up Ray Wise, people, back in his uh, his Twin Peaks days. That's this guy. Just like Brownie Osborne in Prospector, that wonderful head of hair. So I, I guess you have jet black hair, you're someone in your 20s. So much product.
1: Now, the guy who plays Fletcher on the show... I hate to say this, he is not the best guest star they've had. And here's the thing. I, I watched this episode three times. And the first two times, every time Fletcher spoke, I was thinking, okay, this guy reminds me of a Muppet on some <laughs> subconscious level. His voice does. And I was I kept on trying to figure out, okay, which Muppet does he sound like? And then the last time I watched it, my my head was finally clear enough. I realized, okay... He does not remind me of a Muppet. He reminds me of Coach Z from Homestar Runner.
0: That's it. Oh, Homestar, you You're got right. the
1: bazooka. Good job. <laughs>
0: That's so perfect. You're right. Um, our, our guest actor this week, not the greatest delivery in the world. The character itself is written well, but the delivery is is uh, much to be desired. I, I know this is a little bit after the fact, and this is after watching this episode several times. But I need to ask a question, and this is kind of like speculation. It might be rhetorical on my part, but do you think that Stalker was an actually actually was a poor marksman, or he decided not to shoot? the patrol car in such a way we would kill somebody because he's actually never seen combat before. We've talked about his awkwardness with the bazooka setting up his shot because he he's revealed at the end of the episode that he was never in combat. He was never in Korea. So was it some type of uh, an issue with actually taking a life license? He's never taken a life before.
1: I think it was a combination of inexperience, you know, because here's the thing. If you've ever fired a weapon, There is recoil. I think movies and TV do a poor job of getting that across. Mm -hmm. So I think it's inexperience (sighs) with the bazooka. But I also think he does not have the stomach to do it. He thought... Stalker's whole plan was, I have a bazooka. That was the whole Mm -hmm. plan. That should scare everyone into line. Right. But once just scaring everyone is not going to cut it anymore,
0: he's out of there. There's a funny scene. Again, it's not a funny episode, but it's a scene that just struck me funny. Matthew's, Matthew's uh, basically is uh, – they're, they're trying to take down Stalker and Davidson, and the oil field supervisor says something along the lines of, give him whatever he wants, and then Matthew's like, hold on a second. And then the, the supervisor says, you hold on a second. It was just a weird back and forth. Just, this guy was like all angry and surly, and I'm not going to listen to you, cop. You know, like this is our oil field. This is worth millions of dollars. You know, give him what he wants. You rarely see people give Matthews any back talk.
1: I've got some things to say about that character, you know, later when we are, you know, making more serious observations of the episode and not just Mm -hmm. the stuff that made us chuckle. But, uh, yeah, that really stuck out to me as well. It's like, dude, it's Dan Matthews. You can't talk to Dan Matthews like
0: that. Right?
1: Now, the bulldozer as... Okay, first off, it kind of reminded me of the vehicle with the the police battering ram that says have a nice day from the 1987 Dragnet movie with Tom Hanks Thank and you. Dan Aykroyd. The bulldozer is a neat piece of improvisation, you know, making the best of what is on hand, which is something I have a lot of respect for. But it looks like it would be awfully easy if either of the bad guys had any kind of aim whatsoever to pick Matthews or Fletcher off with a headshot because they raised the blade enough that it's not blocking their vision okay well that means their heads are still sticking up there there there's some tactical elements in this episode that I don't know if they're an indicator of how last ditch this situation was for Matthews or maybe
0: it's just not that well thought out I'm not sure It's strange that something like this is a little awkward. And say, uh, an episode before, you know, with Prospector, you know, Brownie Osborne is so good tactically with a rifle. And they were talking about all of these tactical moves and counter moves and be able to outflank or reflank or, you know, reposition or find advantages in this rifle versus gunfight. So when you see something like this, it kind of falls apart when you know that somewhere along the line, there was some type of tactical advisor on the show because the previous episode that we saw... Albeit, there is stretches of time, you know, between Gene's episodes and other people that wrote for the show. But there was a certain logic, you know, to what was going on in that gunfight. Here, it's like, well, it's big and it's armored. Let's do it. Can you drive this? So, yeah, it was a little weird. Also, this is one thing that I probably would have helped Matthews maybe profile, you know, his suspect a little bit earlier and see how much risk he needs to put himself through. So... Towards the end of the episode, Fletcher's tells Matthew that Stalker was a PX clerk in the army and never saw combat. That's kind of important because if the then Matthews would be able to press Stalker, right? He's like, oh, yeah, it's like uh, we don't need this machine. This guy can't, you know, he could he couldn't hit a, a barn with this bazooka, let alone us in an armored, you know, forklift or some kind of whatever that heavy, heavy earth machine was. But. Why bring it up then? (laughs) Like, hey, can he hit us with this? Did he ever see combat? Uh, Oddly enough, no. Well, why didn't you bring that up earlier? Because that was important.
1: This kind of goes back to what I was talking about in Prospector, where Matthews goes and talks to Maggie. And then he goes and talks to Jesse. And, you know, gradually pieces together more and more information. But that sequence of receiving information and kind of processing it and putting it together is blissfully free of ridiculous coincidence. This falls under the category of ridiculous coincidence. Why didn't you Mm -hmm. tell me that earlier? Right. But could be Matthews has other things to worry about, like not breaking both legs. Because did Broderick Crawford actually do that stunt? Sure, looks like Where it. He, yeah, because I mean, he's a he's a big guy. He's now I I know of what I speak because I'm an overweight podcaster. I'm not exactly svelte, but boy, that looked like Broderick Crawford jumped off of the moving bulldozer and captured bazooka guy. And I just winced when I watched that because that landing had to hurt. And I noticed there's a there's a cut in there. There's an edit in there. That kind of blew me away. It's like Broderick Crawford is not made to be an action hero. And I was kind of amazed that they were going to cast him in that role here.
0: You know what, Earl? It reminds me of the, the PSA at the end of this episode. Maybe Dan Matthews should take it on his own advice. If you want to donate blood, don't leave it on the highway, leave it at your local Red Cross.
1: All right Norman I was about to give up on finding much meat to this episode and then the guy from the oil field shows up and opens his mouth like you already said Dan Matthews tells him hold on and he said hold on yourself give them whatever they want you don't know what this oil field is worth it's like okay is it worth more than maintaining order and a rule of law because you're just going to embolden someone like Stalker or dare we say it someone just as well-equipped but bolder and perhaps more competent to just continuously run roughshod over you. Uh, the oil field guy, I, I can't figure out what his mindset is. He kind of feels like he's the epitome of the I've-got-mine-to-hell-with-you guy. Maybe he can hire Milo Hobson when this is all over.
0: He was a strange addition, you know, as a, a cameo extra actor, because that, as we've done with, you know, Mission Log Main... In the past, we know John and I have talked about if you remove a plot line or a character or a character arc from an episode and it doesn't affect the episode or the character at all, then why is that element in there? You can take that oil field character. Why is he in there? He doesn't change the stakes, if you will.
1: I think he's just a... A complication, perhaps, to take up time, and he could be one of these late editions where, you know, someone read the script and said, okay, this is not going to, if we cut this fast and snappy, it's not going to be 22, 26 minutes. We need an added complication. You you have to find some other way to complicate things, you know, some other guy to put in, in the line of fire, potentially, although he disappears after arguing with Matthews.
0: Right. The guy that was in the actual like accounting office that was smoke-bombed out of there and then bludgeoned you know, with, with Davidson's pistol, he would have been the one I thought that would have been able to – if you had to merge the two characters and lines together, the, like the way that you said that Fletcher and the colonel were merged together to reduce the amount of speaking actors and then reduce the amount of cost, that would have made more sense because that guy – you know he's he's coughing up you know smoke out of his lungs. that guy would be angry, you know he would be invested, you know, and obviously he's payroll guy, so he knew about the money and had how much everything was worth. It just seemed like all of a sudden this hard hat guy comes out of nowhere and just starts giving Matthews guff
1: <laughs> right yeah, e- evidently a decision was made, okay, we don't need an extra army colonel, but we need hard hat guy here, and we need him to argue with Matthews, yeah the the thing about setting the entire oil field on fire is you know obviously this has happened domestically as well but the thing that i immediately thought of the thing that immediately came to my mind was and those of you old enough will remember this the news footage of the oil fields burning in kuwait during the first mm-hmm. gulf war that's not an empty threat you know you get that started it's not it's not something that's going to be cleaned up or he stamped out
0: somehow easily, right? That whole thing when Stalker said, "Have you ever seen an oil field on fire?" And the first image that popped into my head for those of you who have seen this movie is uh, Jake Gyllenhaal's Jarhead. There was a, a preview of that where you know he would you would look at him. and He would be looking at again, you know, again these oil fields or oil spouts or oil pits on fire. I mean, that is that is the purest fuel that you know you, you can get your hands on. So. That in and of itself was like, okay, that's kind of like getting into like human bomb level threat. I do have something though, and and bear with me, uh, audience here and Earl too, but I wanted to take this time to read and show you the difference between the actual scripted opening voiceover narration versus what was produced just so that you, the audience can get a sense of how drastic some of these changes can be since Earl and I have access to the script and you don't but you have access to various ways of watching this episode. I think, and, and Earl, uh, let me know what you think after I'm done with the readings. I think that the actual tone of the original voiceover script is different and sets up the episode differently than what we got. So in the produced voiceover, the narrator said, the Highway Patrol maintains a constant vigilance to ensure the safe delivery of the millions of dollars worth of cargo which is transported annually over the highways. The shipments are of varying nature and varying value, but the cargo most tempting to the lawbreaker is money. On August 20th of this year, an armored truck was delivering a $33,000 payroll to the Reiner Oil Company. The schedule and contents of this truck were known, and a highly dangerous plan for seizing it had been devised by two criminals, Virgil Stocker and Alfred Davidson. That's on what you can watch. This is what the actual script said in typewritten form. The richness of our economic system is almost beyond imagination. Nearly a billion dollars in cash and goods change hands each day. And yet the loss due to criminal activity is small. Although outnumbered, law enforcement has the advantage of better discipline, training, and firepower— But in the early summer of this year, the Highway Patrol encountered an unusually dangerous situation, a pair of criminals able and ready to match their weapons against the officers. What do you think about the changes from the actual production from the written script?
1: There is one phrase in Gene's original script as written for this voiceover that jumps out at me that may be the reason for the change. Now, as we know... Highway Patrol was not the first cop show that Gene worked on and not the first cop show that had cooperation from law enforcement agencies. Because in his original voiceover, as written, he says, and yet the loss due to criminal activity is small. Although outnumbered, law enforcement has the advantage of better discipline, training, and firepower. I wonder if someone felt, maybe we don't want to say that. Maybe that almost sounds like we're issuing a challenge, and somewhere out there, a, a stalker in real life, or worse mm. yet, a Davidson, is going to say, Okay, challenge accepted. Right. And so I wonder if maybe that was the pivot point on which someone said, Yeah,
0: maybe we need to redo the voiceover. Well, there's almost kind of like, yeah, you're, there's like a, a subtle hint of escalation in there because, you know, it's uh if you bring a knife to a gunfight. You know, you want to be equally armed in order to, you know, balance the escalation. But then if someone brings a gun, then they bring a bazooka. And I think that that was the point of the original narration voiceover, because the entirety, like you said earlier on, Earl, in observations, the entirety of this episode is based on a guy has a bazooka and the officers don't. You know, um, I think Fletcher at times said, we've got guns, we've got pistols, he's got a bazooka. What are we going to do? Right, so now you have a criminal element out there in the world that says, "Hey, if I can get my hands on superior firepower, then we can. We have leverage over the law. We can do whatever we want." That in Stockton or Stalker says himself, "I got this baby. He is polishing his bazooka. I can do whatever I want. We can blast our way out of here. They're gonna beg us. They're gonna pay us to stand down." Right, one bazooka. So. You know, I I wish that the the, uh, the rest of kind of like the, the opening narration was intact from the original because you feel like they're focusing on the criminal's ability to gain better, better firepower over the authorities. And as as we've said repeatedly so
1: far, Stalker's whole plan is I've got a bazooka and other people will be so afraid of the fact that I have this bazooka that they will do whatever I want. I don't even have to fire it, which I think translates to Uh, I don't even have to show off what a bad shot I am with this because I have really never touched one of these
0: before. Well, I mean, it all kind of like, you know, devolves into Stalker being pretty much an empty threat. And I wanted to get into that in my next point here. So I brought up something earlier in observations where we have the luxury of what we do here on Mission Log genealogy or any other of our Mission Log shows to be able to watch, rewatch, disseminate, dissect, and analyze every episode ad nauseum, because that's what we do, and we want to bring the details to you, our wonderful listening audience. When we first watched this episode, there's 26-odd minutes of entertainment, as it was in 1956. That's all the 1956 audience was able to watch at the time, the one showing. And if they were able to watch it, you know, because destination tv there are so many different programs vying for your time competing etc but that's the only time you got to watch it we got to watch it several times i watched it myself like five times it's only 26 minutes long you know that's that's less than any lord of the rings movie theatrical edition my point is he actually foreshadows what kind of character stalker really is if you pay attention to stalker as a character Gene is really good at slipping in those subversive descriptions and dialogues in conversations where he's telling you more than what you think you should know. There's an opening conversation between Stalker and Davidson when Stalker says he's looking at the bazooka and he's polishing it and Stalker says, a soldier's weapon is his best friend. And then Davidson says, I guess you ought to know, huh? And then Stalker says, ask any guy. That spent 14 months in Korea. I fought from Pusan to the Yalu River and back. I guess I've told enough for you to guess how rugged it was. I got three tanks. I kept one of these so hot it burned my hand. And what did it get me? And then Davidson said, you got a lot of decorations. And then Stalker says, tin medals. You can buy them in a pawn shop. Now, if you notice this in the dialogue and in the performance, Stalker's evading, directly evading answering Davidson's statements without any specificity he's basically saying one ask any other guy that spent 14 months in korea and then two he's like the medals i bought them in a pawn shop he literally is saying i don't have any agency as being a soldier you can do exactly what i did but i did it first and now you you're you're regaling me as a war hero That's what I got from that. But you only get to see that if you get to rewatch the episode multiple times. I mean, did you get that at first or or was again, did it just kind of like grow on you as an idea?
1: There is a strategy and it's really more of a spoof of a strategy for writing college papers. If you can't dazzle them with brilliance, baffle them with BS. Yeah, Stalker is definitely talking himself up as big as he can and If you press him for specifics, there's nothing there. He strikes me as one of these guys whose entire knowledge of overseas combat comes from a movie. But in the meantime, he himself is absolutely nothing whatsoever.
0: He's a gravy seal. (laughs) That's a good one. I'm going to get into that later on. That kind of like actually bookends uh, a moral meaning or message that I'll talk about. But the big question, though, Earl, I have for you and the big question that I have for Stalker himself What's in it for you? Like, why go through all of this? I mean, first of all, Stalker and Davidson, we assume, are the two people that uh, were able to abscond with, uh, under false pretenses of being uh, an army sergeant of uh, artillery, abscond with, I believe it's a bazooka, 19 rounds of bazooka ammo, uh, several small arms, and uh, some other assorted weapons and, and, and goods. Why? Right. You know, like the one thing that we don't get in the 26 minute episode is the why. Like, why did you go through all of this just to get a bazooka to do this? And this goes back to the whole opening narration. The opening narration clearly leans into criminals are finding ways to find greater advantages through firepower in order to be able to hold that as leverage against the authorities. I'm baffled as to why that wasn't left in there, because that that tells you more about why they had to do this and take the advantage of getting a bazooka and all of these bazooka rounds and etc. in order to get the armored car to steal the money. So the point is why, I mean, aside from crime itself, this takes me all the way back to something we talked about in episode two of genealogy. When we covered wife killer from Mr. District Attorney, we talked about what's called the quote unquote, the blueprint of masculinity. And just to reference it again, This was an article that I found on the Case Western Reserve University site. It was written by Caitlin Barnes Langendorfer on October 25th, 2016. And there is a four-part, quote-unquote, masculinity script that was embraced by older men outlined in this, what is called the Blueprint of Manhood, first published by sociologist Robert Brannan. Where the men in the studies entering adulthood in the 1970s, included from this blueprint four parts. No sissy stuff. Number one, men are to avoid being feminine, show no weakness, and hide intimate aspects of their lives. Number two, the big wheel. Men must gain and retain respect and power and are expected to seek success in all they do. Editorializes this as also crime. Number three, the sturdy oak. Men are to be the strong, silent type by projecting an air of confidence and remaining calm no matter what. But here it is. I think this is the reason. Number four, give them hell. Men are to be tough, adventurous, never give up, and live life on the edge. Is this the why that Stalker and Davidson did what they did just because they wanted to give the police hell?
1: Davidson is so young, I don't think he has seen combat. Now, it turns out that Stalker has not seen combat either, but he is older. And right. there is kind of a, an, another part of this masculinity script. that's really kind of part of American society, if you think about it. You've been to social gatherings recently. What is one of the first things that men ask each other in a
0: social setting? When they're what intrigued? do you want to drink? What do you do? Oh. <laughs> Maybe that was the second question. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> this has been a question that is, you know, part of the introduction between men and kind of sizing each other up. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's such a loaded question. What do you do? It's implied that what do you do for a living? But basically, the the broader implications of it are, where do I put you on the pecking order? Where are you right. on the social ladder? How much do I have to respect you?
0: Right, right, right.
1: And so right. Stalker has number one he's been dishonorably discharged which that cannot be a good thing and he climbed the ladder as high as a PX clerk. Are you going to tell people that in a social gathering? No. Right. So he starts making stuff up. You know, maybe someone'll buy him lunch. Oh wow, you were, you know, you were in Korea doing that? Here, let me let me buy you a beer. Tell me your story. Right? It's free meal right. ticket. But when it ceases to be a meal ticket, maybe it gives him temporary leverage over someone less experienced like Davidson. Now, it turns out what Davidson lacks in experience he makes up for in ambition. And so he is dangerous in a different way than Stalker. But it gives him a little bit of temporary leverage where he can get someone to help him pull something like this off. And either way, I think it's about, in some way, whether he has done it to himself or not. And this is sort of implicit with the Dishonorable Discharge. He shot himself in the foot with a bazooka at some point in his career. And now he's suffering for that. He feels disenfranchised and he is trying to... It's sort of like what Asa said in Prospector. I've been out in these hills 40 years, they owe me. Stalker probably feels like society on some level owes him. I did my time in the service, maybe just as a PX clerk, but that was time I could have spent doing something else. Society owes me. And since society's not paying up, hey, I'm going to get a bazooka. Now society's going to pay up.
0: Well, I mean, that's a great point And it leads me into something that uh, I wanted to also bring up in that it it's the aspect of soldiers turned civilian, right? There are a lot of instances in this episode where we're given references to characters who previously served in wartime. You know, you, you have Stalker, again, on, dishonorably discharged. He was ex-army. Morrison said he was ex-army as well. When he mentioned he knew Morrison, being he was the uh, the patrolman, said that uh, he knew the power of bazooka because he's ex-army. Fletcher, he was an army intelligence officer, and he knew how to drive the earth-moving machine because he was a previous tank driver. So I found this the multiple references in this episode fascinating, in, in the way that how former military, for better or worse, were they're either able to reintegrate into civilian life. In civilian careers, or conversely, they're able to use their training to seek out careers or find ways or avenues into crime and, and vigilantism, right? So I'm wondering if this is Gene's way of you know, subtly illustrating that the military still has some type of responsibility for these men after they've served their duty and now are forced to reintegrate into society, or conversely, again, do you think that Gene is trying to make a point on how potentially dangerous a trained soldier can be after being trained with skill sets and these abilities uh, that served them in wartime, and now they're living outside of that discipline and and the oversight of their military structure and their military leadership. I did reference John Rambo in in First Blood in an earlier episode of Genealogy in regards to someone who served his country with distinction, and he was trained as a Special Forces Green Beret, I mean, he is the best of the best at doing what he does, right? And he was discharged, honorably discharged after serving his time. He was in charge of million-dollar equipment. But when he left and he rotated back to the world, he couldn't even get served, you know, food at a diner. He couldn't get a job parking cars, you know. And again, this is the man who has been trained to serve his country in a variety of different unpleasant ways, but couldn't because in Vietnam he was one of the quote-unquote baby killers. That's what he was called in all other kinds of vile crap, quote-unquote. And what do you do with what he knows? How does he integrate in society? How is he going to be able to make a living knowing what he knows and doing what he does? Is that kind of the point of where Stalker is, because he made it through basic training. He knows how to load and fire a bazooka. So are these people just kind of running amok after they leave? If they already lacked discipline, then
1: yes. I don't think it's a brush you can paint everyone with. And I I think maybe that is the point that Gene is saying, is that some of these people coming back from war are better equipped to compartmentalize that and you know, return to some sort of functional life in peacetime, and others are not. I think with Stalker, I really think it is, and we keep coming back to this topic, this sense of bitterness and entitlement, that somehow he did not get what he wanted out of life. He didn't get what he wanted out of army life, and evidently the army didn't get what it needed out of him because he was dishonorably discharged. So again, he feels... That he is owed something. What skills does he have to, in his mind, balance the books and get what he is owed? He has skills used in wartime. You turn that against a civilian population in peacetime. And yes, like you pointed out earlier, everyone is scared of the bazooka. norman at the end of the road with the highway patrol the bazooka has been disarmed we are at that point where we go combing through the story looking for the morals the meanings and the messages if they are there they're a little bit buried in this one at the end of oil lease which that's a weird title because you know the lease okay i get it there is a lease on the land and the land is where all of the oil derricks are. Which those are great background props. That was that was top notch location to shoot mm-hmm. something. But the oil lease itself is not an element of the story, which convinces me more than ever that someone at Ziv who was tasked with keeping all of the paperwork for all of the individual shows straight. Gene script says something like forty nine B. It's episode forty nine B of Highway Patrol. Obviously, someone at the ZIV office had to come up with a better title than that, and so we get weird stuff like Prospector and Oil Lease. At the end of Oil Lease, however, there is the following exchange between Fletcher and Matthews. Fletcher says, One more day like this, and I'm going to put in for a combat infantryman's badge. Maybe we could find one for you, too. To which Matthews replies, indicating his highway patrol badge, "Uh, Thanks very much. This badge causes us enough trouble they climb into the same car and they drive the captured perps away. End of show. I mean, it's almost like one of those things from the end of an episode of Police Squad where there's a slap on the back and everyone freeze frame. This brought to mind a discussion in the last genealogy after dark discussion we had on the Mission Log Discord, which kind of veered into how police departments and law enforcement agencies these days, they now have surplus military hardware to call on. They have bazookas, I'm sure. The language and the training of modern police work is you're fighting a war on crime. Emphasis on war. As we leave Highway Patrol, one thing I find myself missing about the 1950s innocence of Matthews brushing off the thought of any kind of a military commendation, that is a whole different life to him. His military service is in the past. His police service is now never the twain shall meet. It's like the patrolman who ends up having to leave the chase... It's safe to assume that Matthews is ex-military, and he has left it behind. He's compartmentalized it, police work is a whole different thing. This is the first and only Highway Patrol, bearing Gene's name instead of the Robert Wesley pseudonym. And though this isn't an episode or script that has too much of Gene's worldview in it, it's safe to say that most of his Highway Patrol work did have messages both implicit and explicit, about mercy and compassion and not prejudging. And, more often than not, the criminals in Gene scripts were downtrodden and marginalized and not just, hey, I'm bad because I'm drawn that way. These are some of the dominant genes that we expect from his later work in Star Trek. When we recorded the first Highway Patrol episode of this podcast, I asked a question, kind of a rhetorical question. And then I cut it out of the show because I felt it was maybe too early to ask that, but now I'm going to bring it into the conversation again. With all of these thoughts about how not all criminals are necessarily irredeemable bad guys, and not every situation is exactly as it appears on its face, and maybe there should be more compassion. At the same time... That, you know, over the decades, police work has become more kind of implicitly violent. You know, they are well-armed. They are almost militarized. I find myself wondering, TV writing career or no, how much longer was Gene Roddenberry going to be a police officer? Because it seems like his thinking was at odds with that field of work. And now that we've reached the end of what is essentially the second cop show, because Mr. District Attorney was a cop show wearing a tie, I really find myself wondering how long Gene was for that line of work with these kind of thoughts in his head. He obviously wanted to make a difference. I don't think police
0: work was going to cut it for him much longer. That's a great observation. And I think that I'm glad that you brought up that quote with Matthews because Matthews almost the way he says, you know, that this badge causes us more trouble or enough trouble or more trouble than it's worth that kind of sentiment. That seems like that is Gene kind of like bleeding through his writing into his character from the purview of what he's seen across the information desk in the Los Angeles police department. Like, I'm here because having a career is a necessary evil for me to be able to pay my bills. It's not the field of work that I want. It's the field of work that I need. And I almost felt like that is what Matthews is saying. It's it's not the field of work that I want. It's the field of work that what I was trained to do best is best suited for, You know, being ex-military. Again, with the rest of these other characters that we've seen throughout the course of some of these episodes and in the Mr. District Attorney, some of these characters, ex-military, they have to find a way to be able to find a career that allows them to join, quote unquote, civilized normal society, i.e. non-wartime, you know, non-wartime society. And we see that, I think, uh, time and again, sometimes in Star Trek, when you have someone like, say, in the cage, you have a Christopher Pike saying, like, you bet I'm tired, right? I'm tired of making the decision for, you know, 400 some odd lives. Forgive me, I don't know the quote offhand. But he's tired that he has to weigh the 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 odds of who lives and who dies. But that's the service that he was called to serve, right? But it we saw that in the Talosian, you know, the uh, the dream sequences that he would rather be and in Strange New Worlds, too, he'd rather be riding horses in Montana than serving on the starship. Like serving on the starship is, as someone said in about Kirk, it's his, you know, his first best destiny. Anything else would be a waste of material. You know that quote from Star Trek Two. But Kirk would be rather off riding horses and making eggs. And the point is, is that these people don't want to be at war. They don't want to be shooting people. They don't want to be enforcing or any type of, uh, it's not their policy. It's the Bureau's policy. It's the partner's policy, right? So they are a means to an end, but that's not necessarily a lifestyle or a career of choice. It is a means to an end. And I think that that's where Matthews is with that quote. And I think that's where Gene is. So I, I appreciate you bringing that up because I saw that too. And I thought it was a very poignant line and something that was very Gene Roddenberry-ish. But I also f- fell on something that he's shown us before. And it's I think that it's wonderful that we see a reoccurring theme, not just from here in Highway Patrol, but we see this later on in his work. And that is charlatanism uh, being a time-honored tradition of not just... Storytelling, but something that helps kind of craft very interesting characters um, if you 're not familiar with the term or if you if you need a refresher because I love doing this, I love going online to the Merriam Webster online dictionary it 's tabbed on my uh you know on my Google bar and it defines a charlatan as quote one making usually showy pretenses to knowledge or ability end quote so we saw kind of like this really interesting, similar situation. And a relationship with stalker and davidson and we saw this earlier in one of Gene's scripts and you brought this up earl we saw this in an episode of mr district attorney's police brutality with deed and artie deed kind of like leaned into his puffery of being an ex-military man and artie was kind of like eating it up you know with you know, with with every word you know Deed being the whole. We're at war. We're going to treat this as a war. We're going to use tactics like wartime. And Artie's like, yes, yes, yes. This is this is exactly what I need. You know, you have kind of like these Lenny type characters of mice and men that fall into these, you know, that fall prey to these types of people, right? So the deeds of the world, the stalkers of the world, they have this strong man mentality, you know, in this kind of like the vision of who they should be. Like you said, not who they are, but who they should be. And they're both exposed in their respective episodes for being the charlatans that they are because they use this knowledge, right? They use this pretense to knowledge and the abilities that they may have learned. They said that, you know, Stalker was basically trained. You know, he went through basic training. He has specific knowledge that the everyday man or the layman wouldn't have military-wise, right? Right. That gives them influence. That gives them the authority over people who want to be a Stockton, who wants to be an actual officer or an actual soldier. So you have this kind of trickle-down theory that's going on with the whole, the, the illusion of who they are, right? So they're the biggest fish, right, in their littlest ponds. But it's not just in this show. It This whole charlatanism aspect, you see in every era of entertainment, you see that in society at large and it's mimicked in the entertainment that we watch, right? So just be, be aware and be wary of the deeds and stalkers of the world. Stalker, not stalker, S-T-A-L-K, right? You know, but there are also charlatan stalkers in the world. Just make sure that you see them for who they are. Know that their influence is solely fed by your adulation, Uh, We were talking about this off camera before, like the way that Apollo was feeding off of the energy of those who uh, gave him praise and adulation, uh, his worshipers, because that's what they want, right? And you can't see the forest from the trees. So charlatans are, that's a flowery way of saying con man. They're really good at what they do. And they're backed into a corner when they're exposed. And you don't know what's going to happen after that.
1: Right, and, and this reminds me of one of my favorite quotes from Carl Sagan's book, The Demon-Haunted World, Science Has a Candle in the Dark. And I think maybe this is what Sagan was warning us about and possibly what Gene is warning us about as well. I'll read you this short passage. One of the saddest lessons of history is this. If we've been bamboozled long enough, we tend to reject any evidence of the bamboozle. We're no longer interested in finding out the truth. The bamboozle has captured us. It's simply too painful to acknowledge, even to ourselves, that we've been taken. Once you give a charlatan power over you, you almost never get it back. Mission Log Geneology is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Special thanks to the Roddenberry Repertory Players. Our cast this week featured Mark Proct as Detective Dan Matthews, Matt Hensley as Fletcher, and David Takechi as the Colonel. If you would like to support us directly, you can do so at patreon.com missionlog for early access to shows and the Mission Log Discord. If you have any material that might be of interest to us that isn't already in the Roddenberry Archive, drop us a line at missionlog at roddenberry.com. Our website is missionlogpodcast.com. On the next genealogy,
0: Radioactive. Special thanks to consulting producers, Matt Esposito, Homer Frizzell, Tom Kozak, Julie Miller, Mike Richards, Mike Shabel, Paul Shadwell, and David Tekechi. We'll be back next week with more of your favorite programs.
1: Our broadcast day. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com.